So when's the first Sunday of Advent? When it's common, we're, we're doing a fairly typical uh, reading for Advent. It's Matthew 1 and the first 18 verses. And, we, and you'll notice we've had verses 2 all the way down through verses 16 sung to us beautifully by, by Adele and Peter. And that, and that was it for some economy and stuff like that. But I want you to pay attention to that first verse. Well, I'm going to read the first verse. And then we'll read this 18th, I'm sorry, 17th and 18th verse, these two verses. And most of the message will actually, most of this we're going to look at is in, very, very briefly are those, are those three verses. Um, and so there is something to notice here. Look at, look at how this begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then looking at the, those last two verses. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and then from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And this is very, very brief. I, was, I, I do this because it's for me. Father, I, I just want words from you. I want words that come by the Spirit and I, for, for, for all of us. I want words for you, from you for myself. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, uh, so I'm excited about this. Uh, how many of you have done the 23 and Me? Has anybody done that yet? The, uh, you have? Jack, uh, you've done it, Brandon. Any surprises? Any surprises? I'm kind of curious. Anything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any surprises? Any surprises in your Jack? In yours? You're 0.1% European. I can see it. Um, no, I, I, apparently in this generation, there's a, there, there's a rising fascination. One of the most popular Christmas presents you can give right now is this testing kit. And all you have to do is a little saliva or something, and you send it off. And, and before you'll get back in the mail in two, three weeks, or six weeks, or whatever, uh, some map of your ancestry. And, and, and apparently there are surprises that are, will wait some of us, and, and I've heard surprises about it. And so that's, that's very popular now. It's always been popular. It always has been popular. I mean, the idea that, of knowing your, your genealogy, knowing where you come from, or knowing your family story, or knowing your... That's always been pretty popular. It's always been pretty popular to identify those things. But many of us probably can't go back more than three or four generations in this age. Isn't that funny? We did not keep records like that. That said fast. Has anybody ever explored deeply their genealogy? Like, tried to really go... You have been clear. How far did you actually go? Eight generations. My grandmother, apparently, she did it. Uh, uh, this is many, many years ago. And we, we go all the way back to uh, almost the Mayflower, but we were Tories. And so she could not become a daughter of the American Revolution. Because, get, get this, like, just imagine, this is my mom. Uh, my, she's, she goes back through her genealogy, and somewhere way back in here, in the middle of it, her, uh, one of my forebears liked the British more than the uh, Revolutionary War. And so she was disqualified from joining the Daughters of the American Revolution, a rather prestigious blue blood group on the East Coast. And they wouldn't let her in because they were Tories. And so it, that's an interesting idea to me because it shows one of the ways, or it, it's an illustration of, it shows one of the ways that our genealogy probably does more, has more to do with our lives than we think and, and probably would inform them. And I wonder what we could find in our genealogies or what we might discover. There's a fun story 
there's a fun story I remember of a comedian actually telling the story of meeting the queen. And, and, and this, this, I love this. They were walking up a staircase, and there at the juncture as you go from one landing to another, there's a big, big painting of Henry VIII. And every one of us, that's such an iconic image, you can picture it. Henry VIII, the big king. And as they're walking by, Queen Elizabeth looked at the painting and said, you know, Uncle Henry was a bit embarrassing. And they walked on. And he said, oh my goodness. Like she just walks around the house saying, oh yeah, that's my uncle. He's a bit embarrassing. It's her history and she has to own it. It informs her, it shapes her. And he said it was so interesting to watch how she casually, you know, I just casually mentioned it. And a figure from history that we studied. Anyway, so genealogy, yeah. And so I'm going to say that this genealogy has been constructed in a way that's meant to give you, tell you something about Jesus. It's, it's constructed in a way to, 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 to illustrate and to, and to draw you into a knowledge of Jesus that might surprise you. And the intention of the writer, the genealogies, is, is more fascinating than it might appear by all the words that are very hard to even pronounce. All the names. Uh, it, it, interestingly enough, uh, that's, let's, that's, let's kind of hone in here. And I want to I wanna sh- point out some things that, that Matthew does very beautifully. You see that first line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ? That is a direct lift of Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. He is actually quoting in that structure Old Testament passages back in Genesis. Why? Why? What would be the, impo- the importance of that? Don't miss this. Matthew is claiming, I'm writing Bible. I am in line. I am a sequence from the Old Testament to the New. There is a continuity. There is an integrity. There is a connection between them. And, and, and he is actually laying hold of that in the language itself. Isn't that fun? He's using language that they'll recognize as Genesis language and therefore connecting the story of the Bible is one big whole. And I love that. And that's part of what he's doing. And what he's saying is the Old Testament belongs to us as the people of God. This is our genealogy as we have Christ. I'll toy with that a little bit more as we go along. There's another thing I want you to notice here that there's a... Now, let's, 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 that's enough for right now. He's like, oh, well, we don't have the genealogies anymore. And there's an interesting reason why. Uh, Herod the Great destroyed them because his own lineage was questionable. This maniac who ruled most of Palestine for, like, I forget for how many years, he was, he was a king for quite a long time. He tries to kill Jesus in the next chapter. Uh, he he uh, was so concerned about his own lineage not establishing his right to be king, he did a classic political move that sounds similar to what a leader today might do. He just wiped out every genealogy there was. So nobody could, nobody could be a rival. And nobody could question him. So these, these and one of, the, one of the reasons I bring that up is we can't verify this. When you go from about verse 12 on, this, this part of the, the, of the genealogy is not verifiable. We don't, have, we don't have external witnesses to it. And so a lot of these words, are, a lot of these names are not anywhere else in the scripture. And so, and, and so those are the observations about the text that I want you to kind of have in hand and, and be thinking about. But what I want to do is I want to mine this for clues about who Jesus is. And that's what I think Matthew's up to. And because his name is Matthew, these, four, these three points will actually start with an M. Isn't that so nice? Matthew, Matthew, the miscount, the mess, and the meeples. The miscount, the mess, and the meeples. I'll, not, I'll explain all that in a second. 
the miscount. Uh, there's actually a glaring inaccuracy in the, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the text. Anybody, I don't know if anybody knows what it is. But it's right here. 14 generations. All right, go ahead and count if you want. There are 14 generations between these epochs in ancient history, between Abraham and David, and between David and the deportation, between the deportation and the birth of Christ. 14 generations. But go back. The genealogy is wrong. In order to make it 14, Matthew, between verses uh, 7 and 12, omits five different kings. Takes five kings out, just to make it even. What a cheat. Do you think that? Do you imagine that? I mean, imagine somebody would think that. And in fact, what has happened is, in the modern world, we often look with contempt upon the ancient texts, saying what? They're written by primitive people who didn't understand or had a, who, who merely wanted to make things up in order to make the truth more palatable or to make the truth neat or concise or make the truth somehow packageable. But that is not what is happening. I want to encourage you something. This is kind of fun. That is, this is not. This is an intentional miscount. And that, why, why do I claim that? Because the ancients were not like us in one very important way. They knew how to do arithmetic to an extraordinary extent, by the way. Their math was extraordinary. But they also took numbers and they had meaning. And, uh, and this is still common in Asia, too, where numbers have a special kind of meaning in particular different cultures and different culture to culture. But the numbers themselves have a pack a punch and everybody knows it. We only have one number like that really in, uh, in, uh, our, in America, and that's like 13. That's the only number I can think of that we kind of like, everybody knows 13 is not a good number to have. It's not a number to have in your life. You don't want it. Maybe 666 for some people. I don't know. <laughs> when I got over a new account and it said, and my, my account number was 6669, I just sat there and looked at it and I was like, is that okay? Is that okay? There's three six, is that okay? That, I mean, that works on us. In other words, it works on us and I'm a modern. And, and, and we, but in the ancient world, especially in the ancient world of the Jews and the Judeo-Christian tradition, what is a, uh, 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 what goes into 14? <laughs> Seven. And the reason that's important is in, in, in ancient Hebrew, if you repeat something twice, it's a way of saying it's perfect. It's perfect perfection. Uh, Jesus does this when he says, truly, truly. That's a Hebrew, that's a Hebrew parallelism. It's a Hebrew, um, it's uh, uh, actual idiom, which is meant to say this is a perfect truth. This is true as truth gets when Jesus says that. Now, so this double sevens, which winds up being 14, the, the writer is actually saying something very, very particular to you. And that is, however it seems, God has perfectly orchestrated this whole genealogy. And there can't be no doubt. There can be no doubt. Actually, seven becomes very important in Matthew and Matthew 18. How many times shall you forgive? Seventy times seven. You see, the same sort of echoes of the multiples of seven. Now, so what this is, a claim, in fact, is to the sovereign work and love. What we, did, what we, we talked about recently, sovereignty is God's love language. It's how God has loved despite the chaos. He has loved. And the miscount is not a miscount. He is claiming we arrive here at verse 17, and we are a part, and we have seen, and we are witnesses, and we are reading about a perfect plan that has been executed in perfection. 
In fact, the writer's going to keep saying that Christ came in the fullness of time. Like everything was ripened. Everything had come to a climax at a certain crescendo and necessity. And that is the 14. It's a theological statement about the beauty of God's plan. It's like this. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever seen brass? Brass, when, you, when it's shine, when it's really been buffed, it just shines, right? If you get really close to it, just with a, just with a, just with a uh, little magnifying glass, uh, you get up and you'll see that every, that shine is really nothing more than thousands upon thousands upon thousands of random scratches in the metal. You see? So you're down in the metal, you wouldn't know in the scratches and all the different things that happen, you wouldn't know that if you backed up, if you backed up, I knew I was going to knock that out. And when you backed up, you could see the shine. Get it? You could see the perspective. And that is what Matthew's doing. Matthew is actually, in a sense, telescoping himself back from the history of of, of God's plan from Abraham to Jesus and saying, look, this has been executed and has arrived with a a degree of intention and person and and work and planning that should boggle the mind. Praise him. And 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 this this right for the first moment, I want you to. I, I'm looking forward to the day when God does that for me. Because I, I, sometimes I feel like all I can see are scratches. <laughs> Don't you ever feel like that? Sometimes all I can see is the mess, the scratches I'm in. All I can see is that my life seems, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But what do we do? And what, what God's sovereign love invites us to do is to stay, take a step back. And take, keep taking a step back. And sometimes the, God will help you to do this. Take a step back and see. Ah, I see the shine now. I see my life is shining for him, and I didn't even know it. And I think your life's shining for him, and you don't even know it. Praise him. Praise him. Matthew's miscount is nothing but (laughs) a sermon about sovereign love. Let's go further. Let's go further. There's also something else remarkable about the genealogy. Remember how I said that uh, my, my, my grandmother was disqualified from the daughters of the American Revolution? Well, there's a lot to disqualify you here. I have never, oh my goodness. And, but one of the things that I, I want to draw our attention to is the women in the genealogy. Because the women in the genealogy, they're not, they don't usually go there. In fact, Matthew is really kind of out of line here. There really is no point in bringing up, uh, bringing up Tamar, it's an incest story. It's very unpleasant. What about, what about uh, Ruth? What about Rahab? Rahab in here, the, right here, uh, Boaz by Rahab. She's a hooker. She wasn't even a Jew. Wait, what about, uh, what about Bathsheba? She's a homewrecker. What about Ruth? She's a stranger. She's a Moabite. What are they, what are they doing? In the, in the genealogy of the blessed Savior and the Messiah. What? I know what they're doing there. It's a clue to what Jesus does and who he loves. He loves mess. He does. God is drawn to mess. Praise him. <laughs> Let me, you know, my aunt was a prostitute. I am not ashamed. God wasn't ashamed of me <laughs> in his love. Praise him. And in fact, and, 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 and one of the cool things was, you know, artists love this genealogy. And they love this because in a wonderful way, artists are predisposed in a sense to find and want to find this sort of meaning. 
Um, I know, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm kind of excited about it. You, you know, I took, I took two classes in art history, and I'm an expert now. <laughs> no, but this Dutch master, this is Tamar. And this is Judah. Look at Judah coming out of the dark. All the lights on Tamar. Tamar was simply trying to reclaim her right to have a baby. And, 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 and Judah didn't want to have anything to do with it because it would cost him money. So she staged herself as a temple hooker and seduced him. Look at, look at, look at, this is one of the Dutch masters. Look how sinister he looks. Does he look lascivious and lecherous? And look at her. She's bathed in light because her goal is pure. He is coming out of the darkness to consume her, but he doesn't. It's really beautiful and beautifully understood. What's the next woman? The next woman is Rahab. Uh, Chagall, oh, Chagall's so playful. You almost look at how suggestive it is. Rahab is a hooker. What's she doing? She's offering herself. She's coming on to them. That's what would have happened. She would have thought they were there for business. That's what you do. That's why men go to them. And what does she find out? What does she find out? And she towers. Look how Chagall makes her tower. Why is he making her tower? She's in the genealogy. Her stature. Nobody should have remembered her name. Why is it so suggestive? Well, do you know what Rahab means in, in Hebrew? Wide. As in legs spread wide. And you may say to me, Chris, I can't believe you say that. You've got to know Hebrew is crass and can be very, very in your face. And I think we need to get in our shoulders' faces a little bit about this. Why? Because Jesus loved the girl whose name was Wide and said, that's one of my moms, and I celebrate her. Uh, the next is, uh, this is Blake. Uh, well, I love Blake, and Blake, Blake always has that. This is totally Blake. The whole idea is the light is coming from the left, and that's where innocence is. And she is going off into the darkness with dark hair. She is desolate. And she is clinging to life. She, and she is completely bathed in innocence and white. That's Blake's weird view of the world and his uh, odd. I mean, Blake was, William Blake was really weird. He was a nudist. Uh, people used to walk up and well, I mean, he was sitting nude with his wife and ask him what he was doing. He goes, oh, we're watching the angels in the trees. It's not a joke. He, he's nuts. But, uh, and he would have wanted to say that, 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 that uh, this represents um, um, in the Old Testament uh, the arrival of some of the New Testament joy. And he had a weird theology about it. But he celebrated Ruth and her connection with Naomi. And then finally, Rembrandt. <laughs> I, look, look I, 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 her face, she just got in the letter. And it's interesting, if you look a little detail, there's a smudge of red on the letter. What's that suggested of? Blood. Blood. This is going to be a bloody business. She just got the news, and David has called for her to come and be his consort, come and be his, his, his mistress. And look at her face. Look at the, that's Rembrandt in action, able to capture a meaning and a truth. And this has been called, hailed as one of the finest examples of his ability to capture emotion vividly and powerfully. Can you see her living there? What would you do? The king has summoned you and you love your husband. What do you do? You're powerless. Totally powerless. What do you do? It's kind of interesting. She has man hands. See that? She's deformed. 
very unusual for Rembrandt to make a mistake like that, but it's not a mistake. I think a part of the, her disfigurement, a part of her, the clumsiness about her is supposed to be about, it's supposed to make you, it's supposed to disquiet you, make you feel a little uncomfortable. Something's wrong. It's giving you clues. Something is amiss. And so the artists lay hold of the genealogy. I love that. I want to lay hold of genealogy. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus isn't. He's not ashamed of your mess and your failure. He just isn't. He's willing to own it as his own. Praise him. You know, I, as I kind of, you know, as you pull these ideas and you're trying to think, well, how do you know, to me, I, I'm so in love with this genealogy just for this reason. I hope that it invites you into the joy of God too. But finally, the meeples. Does anybody know what a meeple is? Anybody? Anybody know what a meeple is? All right. I was actually going to bring one. It's in, in modern board games. Honey, don't. I know. I, I can already see my wife going, oh, no. Modern board games. The little characters that look like people are called meeples. I don't know where it came from, but they're like little figures. And you move them around a board. And, they, and usually if you have a worker placement game, uh, you, you put them in a particular place and they do something. And they're called meeples. They're little people called meeples. The reason I thought of that is all the names in here that we don't know. Like all the anonymous names. You know, like, who the heck is Akam? Azor? I have no idea. Elliot, I have no idea. Read the beginning of 1 Chronicles. You can get even more of this. If you want to feel just how much the Bible commits itself to anonymous names, read the book of Numbers. Start in it. Go ahead. You'll see it. Name after name. What could possibly be the point of having to burden us so that we have to actually get somebody to sing it so we don't get bored? <laughs> What's happening here? There are no little people in the kingdom. I love the fact that there's no anonymity with Christ and that he reaches into these people's lives and claims them as his own. Matthew claims them for Jesus. Why? Because you and I are faced with the fact that we are anonymous. We will die, and people will not remember us. That's a frightening prospect. Gee, Chris, thanks for the encouragement. No, but a thousand times no, because if God's love is real, and if this Christ who comes did the things that happened, if he is actually, actually a miracle birth that comes to a miracle cross and then comes to a, through a miracle resurrection from the dead, then guess what? Guess what? All, then then all, there can be a love that can capture every single little person there ever is, because there's no little people in his eyes. And I, I, these lists, they, they're charming because he's saying to you, I, I'll write your name down too, Miguel. God is in the business of writing down names. That's what Jesus told us. Does anybody know what the book is called? <laughs> the book of life? In the book of life, your name is written down. It can never be removed. In the book of life, the idea is it's, it's a book of life. It's a book where it's recorded. And the point there is not that there's some book somewhere. The, book, the idea there is a book is, a, is an analogy for us because we use books and we use stuff like that. But the idea is, is that that is how real it is. And, that, and you are not anonymous to him. You have never been anonymous to him. And in the history of all things, when he makes all things new, your story will be a story to be told by the king, 
by Christ, the Savior, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Messiah. Like that's what he's saying. And our lives count and they matter because of his love. And praise him. You know, when you struggle with your own insignificance, it's enough to, it's enough to make you have a bad day. It's enough to make you want to die. It's enough to make you want to give up. Surrender. But don't. Would you trust this Savior? Trust Him. You know, seek out to trust Him. And I hope you trust Him because, because you can trust Him. Because the miscount is a story. It looks like a miscount. It's a story of perfect sovereign planning and love. The mess, the mess. Well, Jesus loves mess. He owns it. And He owns yours when you trust in Him. And finally, ah, <sighs> He, he said that he, he will make us princes, kings to reign with him. I mean, guys, there's no, there's not even, there's just no little people anymore. There's only the sons and daughters of God. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that sweet? Isn't that precious? I hope I've rescued the genealogy for your devotional life. <laughs> and it will give you some joy. Let's pray. Father, you're good. <laughs> I read this. I read this stuff, I, and, and you begin to see and pull it, and it just kind of tumbles out, like it's tumbling out of your heart or something. Like it's just tumbling out of Matthew. It's, and I, I picture Matthew like writing it and being like, "Oh, wait a second. There's a story to tell here. There's a story to tell here of your faithful love, of your owning it." We ran, we sang the song earlier. Um, and the word said, you shun not the virgin's womb. But I remember the old words, Father, the old words from hundreds of years ago. You abhor not the virgin's womb. You don't abhor us. We are not abhorrent to you. No we, are, no, we are precious, precious children. And not one of us is anonymous. Even the, even the most humble of us and the most, the most simple and, and, the, and the one who has the least to offer calls you Father. And can call down the entire kingdom. <laughs> Praise you. Would you let this the genealogy in the season, the Advent season, and this worship uh, restore us into some into joy and restore us and, and maybe we can find ourselves again here in your plan, <laughs> like we read in the genealogy. How I praise you, dear Father, for your love to us in Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit come and make all these things clear to all those you have chosen. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, I feel like I squeezed that genealogy dry. I'm not sure there's much more in there. There's not much more meat on that bone, I don't think. What do you think? You think I can get any more out of it? No. And so we will continue in Matthew next week. But now, how do we respond to a message like this? And what do we do? This is where we come to communion. Communion says all these things, right? Um, communion says all these things. Uh, it says, it says a truth that God is sovereignly loving. It says a truth that God enters our mess. It says a truth that God has, remember this is supposed to be a recelebration and a restructuring and a reformatting of Passover. And God has always been about this business of eating with us <laughs> and loving us that way. No meeples, but people sat down to dine with the King of Kings. <laughs> I love this. I love everything about it. On the night he was betrayed, 
Our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. It happened to be Passover. And he took bread, unleavened bread like this. And he broke it and he said, this is my body. This is my body, which is, which is your, for you, your sustenance is for you. Take and take and eat. And then after dinner, he also took a cup of wine. We have wine here to the right and grape juice to the left for those who's, who prefer it. But he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take, take this and drink it. So in this table, in this body, in this blood, in the bread and wine, he is offering himself. And again, you see, it's so simple, it's so basic, it's so easy to understand. It's so comprehensible. A Jesus who loves our mess. Mm, I love this. Now, uh, so I want to invite you. Now, I'm going to do something today. I'm actually going to, I'm going to attempt to insult somebody right at this moment. I'm going to do an anti-altar call. What I mean is, I have, to, I have to bar the way to this table for one kind of person. If you think you're a good person, you are not a part of this story yet. Because this story of God's love is for sinners. And sinners only. So good people, I would encourage you, you don't really need the table. Don't, don't be offended. Well, what do you need it for? But God's love is for those who are broken, not for those who imagine they are whole. So the second, the second message, I guess, the second message of that is that just as this table is not for good people, who is it for? It's for sinners. It's for the broken. It's for the needy. So who, were, who are four women who would have loved this table? <laughs> Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And I'll tell you, you couldn't keep them from this table, I'm pretty sure. Now, finally... So you're invited to this table if you know Christ and, 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 and see, see your need for a Savior. But there's a final group. If you're a skeptic today, and as I make these claims, you know, I've made some pretty bold claims about God's sovereign plan and history and everything. Uh, and, and if you find my claims untenable or questionable, and you're not in a place of faith yet, then I would ask you to watch us take communion. And I'm hoping you'll be provoked to envy that we could know a God that way. <laughs> I hope that you will be, you will be like, oh, wow, I, that's something I, I, w- I want to be able to do that someday. I wonder if that's possible for me. So anyway, I, I, if you're a skeptic, I, just, I, I, I invite you to watch, and you can chuckle. It won't bother me. Okay, uh, Christian, brother and sister, tell me, what, what do you believe? Uh, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Come. So you're going to play that while we're doing the offering. Fantastic. All right. Let's go. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. 
Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then he came. Aram then Aminadab, Nashon who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Rushi married Boaz who had Obed who had Jesse. Jesse he had David who we know as king. David he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Uzziah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amen, who was a man, who was the father of a good boy named Josiah. Who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity, because he was a liar. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azor, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliathan. He had Eliezer, who had Mathen, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. 